0: This morning, as I said, I have the privilege of continuing our foundation series that Kondo has been leading us through for the past few weeks and uh, would love to just catch us up just a little bit uh, as we dive in today. And as we've been settling into our uh, new home here at the Warsaw Performing Arts Center, uh, this is week number four. What we've been doing since we got here is taking a look back at some of our history and some of our foundations. Uh, What are some of the things that God has called us to be as a church? If we look back to six years ago, back to when this thing started, what were some of the things that God laid out uh, for the church's leadership? What are our foundations? And finally, where are we going now that we are here? And so as Kondo started the the series, he dove into a passage in Isaiah that was really, really central and really foundational for him and the leadership team as they started the church. Because there was this call, there was this desire, these commandments that were laid out. And as they looked at it, they said, yes, I think that's what God's calling us to. I think this is the kind of church that God wants us to be. And some of the elements of that passage were thoughts and big ideas like fighting injustice, Freeing the oppressed, feeding the hungry, fending off homelessness. And as we talked in taking these courageous steps forward and looking towards these directions and faithfully, obediently stepping forward in these things, the passage in Isaiah showed us where God will send revival. Through the acts of his people and their obedience, he will send revival. He will send and bring restoration. He will bless our reputation. He will be our refuge. and As we actively engage in this mission and follow in obedience and move towards some of the mess and some of the brokenness that we find, God will quicken his response to us. And then in week two, we talked about Joshua, who's handed the reins of leadership over the Israelites in this major, major moment where God declares, Moses, my servant is dead. And this was huge in the course of the story of the Israelites because Moses was one of the major founding fathers. He was the person that God used to bring deliverance to the people, to bring them out of slavery. He was the person, it was through Moses, that God gave and set up the commandments. He was their leader and the direct connection to Yahweh, the Lord. And yet the Lord makes it clear to Joshua, Moses, my servant, Is dead. But the promises and the blessings and the things that I have set up, I'm passing those on to you and to my people. I will not forsake you. I will not leave you. And the big idea coming out of that was don't let anything hijack the mission. It would have been really easy and understandable for the Israelites to kind of have a freak out moment when Moses dies of, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? And God says, no, 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 the story continues, the plan continues. Now through my servant Joshua, the mission continues. Don't let anything hijack the mission. And we exist to invite everyone everywhere to life in Christ. And we want to be a church that is on mission, that is always working and striving to live and to carry out the mission. And we know there are moments where we get distracted and we find ourselves in difficult seasons and situations. And yet we want to be committed to what the Lord has called us to and not let anything pull us away. And finally, last week, we talked about our calling to share the gospel, to lean in with courage and bravery and to not worry about the response or measure the response, but to own our spheres of influence and in all our efforts and all our desire to live out the mission that we would be about Jesus and only Jesus And Kondo has just done such an incredible job over these last few weeks and talking about these really big foundational ideas. And for me, they have been exciting. They have been refreshing. They have been convicting. As we settle in here and we begin to set the pace and we begin to look back up and, and, and re-explore our mission and our vision. But at the end of the day, as we process these things, how do we practically live them out? How do we take some of these really big ideas and actually stay on mission and live mission? And you may say, hey, okay, uh, fighting for the poor and for the oppressed. That's cool. I get that. That is great. That makes sense. And uh, don't let anything hijack the mission. Got it. Check. No problem. Okay, sharing the gospel. I know, I know. I should really do that. But how? How in 2016 do we do that? And I don't know if you noticed, but there's a lot of division out there. That there's a lot of tension, this pent up anger and frustration that's just starting to boil over very specifically in our country. Right now it feels like everybody is just sipping on this venti extra hot angry tea and washing it down with some ice cold Haterade. I mean, it's no matter where you go, it feels really tense. There's politics. There's tensions over race. We saw this again flare up last night in Milwaukee. There's religion, there's politics, there's terror, there's social issues, there's sexuality. Did I mention politics? There are these things that are so prevalent and in front of us and in our face and at the forefront of our minds and it's the things that we're constantly consuming and we're seeing and we're reading about and we're hearing about and it's so easy for these things to pull us off mission. Is it possible for us to stay on mission when we struggle to get along or even like each other? How do we live the mission and not enter into some of the fray of the division and, and the uh, work of offending people and stepping on people's toes? I, I know for me, a lot of times it, just, it comes down to just some fear. Of feeling, oh man, I, I don't wanna do the wrong thing. I don't wanna mess this thing up. And I, I don't, oh, I'm worried about how this is going to play out. And so we kind of go through this progression and this transition when we talk about things like sharing the gospel, where we may start with just saying, hey, I, you know what? I, I don't really know how to do that. So I'm going to trust the professionals with that. I'll invite my friends to church. I'll bring them and have them in you know, a nice comfy seat and it'll be great. And then the professionals can take care of it and that, that will be great. But then maybe, oh my goodness, what if, what if I invite someone to church? And they say, no, that'll be super awkward. And then I'll see them again. And it'll be like, oh, there's the person I asked to church. And they said, no. And they'll be like, there's the guy that asked me to church. And that was weird. And I don't want that to happen. And so, oh my goodness, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'll just, just talk about sports, you know, keep it uh, to the Olympics or maybe the the bachelorette or um, we can get together, play Pokemon Go. I don't, you know, but let's just, let's just be really chill about this thing. Let's be super, super friendly. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll watch my language. I'll be really nice, uh, really kind. I'll do lots of pleases and thank yous. I know, it's a really crazy idea. When I go shopping and I'm checking out, um, I'll look at the cashier's name tag. And so when I thank her, I'll actually use her name. The party that will go on in heaven when I call her out by name is gonna be tremendous. So it's legit. I'm pressing the gospel forward. Woo! And we just get to this place of just kind of backpedaling And finding this sort of, oh, where do we land in this? And then we come to church and our pastor says something super annoying like, when's the last time you shared the gospel? (sighs) And then he closes the service and he prays things like that we would have a chance to share the gospel with someone in the next couple of days. And we feel this tension of like, oh, how do we do that? Well, when Jesus first started his ministry, he went about the work of gathering his disciples, his team, and he went about the work of um, collecting them and and, um, just having them travel with him and begin to teach. and, And they experienced all of these just kind of amazing and some crazy things. See, I think it's easy for us to look at Jesus and be like, well, that's Jesus. I mean, he is son of God. He was perfect. Like, wow, that's kind of hard to relate to. But these disciples, I mean, they were kind of like everyday guys, right? Like maybe we can relate to them. And so I started to ask that question. Well, how did it start for them? How did the mission of the gospel become something that became this way of life for them? Because the reality is you and I are sitting here today because they were obedient and following the commands of God and Jesus to go and make disciples in all the nations. And now thousands of years later, we're sitting here because they did it and they followed through. But what was their motivation? What what was the thing that drew them in? Like, yeah, they experienced a lot with Jesus and they went through his death and they went through his resurrection. And then there's this moment where Jesus says, hey, listen, um, I'm going back to heaven. I've got some work to do up there. Uh, This whole gospel thing, you guys got it. Okay, ready, set, go. And Jesus drops the mic and he takes off. And again, the disciples did it. So what was it? What was their motivation? Why did they go all in with Jesus in this gospel ministry. Let's look at the beginning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Matthew chapter four, first book in the New Testament. If you don't have your Bible, no problem. It's up on the screen above my head. So we'll start off here. We're going to bounce around to a couple of different places, but we can take a look at this one together. Matthew chapter four, verse 18. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Well, that was super helpful. This weird moment where I look at that and I go, okay... So the disciples, I mean, were they like super special or like superhuman or did they not have a healthy dose of stranger danger? Like, what is it about this moment where this guy walks up and says, Come, follow me? I'll teach you how to fish for people. Fish for people? What? Like, they are fishermen, and what about that? They thought, well, that sounds cool. Let's fish. I've never caught a person before. Let's try that out. That sounds really cool. I'm going to drop everything. I'm going to leave Dad and just see you, and I'm out. Like, I just don't get it. It feels kind of odd and robotic, right? Well, I will never forget when someone began to teach me ...some of these ideas and these concepts... ...and it just opened my eyes to some of the bigger story... ...and the background of what's going on here. And so I want to share some of that with you today. And see, this is an all-too-common case... ...where some of our modern Western mindset... ...is missing major, major pieces of the story... ...and what was really happening in terms of the context... ...of these young Jewish fishermen. See, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they are all fishing... And we see James and John are fishing with their dad. Why? Because that's what you did as a young Jewish man. You went and you learned the family trade. But that's not how it would have started for them. Like all of our kids, many of whom are going back to school tomorrow, Jewish children would start in the education system. They would start going to school around the age of five or six years old. And they would usually report to the local synagogue for their version of elementary school, which is known as Beit Sefer. And Beit Sefer stands for House of the Book. And it would last about four to five years. And uh, boys and girls would attend Beit Sefer until they were about 10 years old. And during Bait Sefer, their teacher, a local rabbi, would teach them the Torah. Now, the Torah is the first five books of our Bible, the Old Testament, and they would uh, read through the stories and they would teach the stories. Now, the Bible was not readily available in print for them like it is for us today. In fact, uh, it was written in scrolls, really large scrolls. And there was usually only one per community, one per synagogue. So you'd go to the synagogue and they'd pull out the big scrolls and they would read them. And so the oral tradition of the scriptures was a really big deal. The reading and the hearing of the scriptures and then the memorization You see, this is critical because they couldn't just go home and Google the Ten Commandments or pull out their Bible app to read the creation account about Adam and Eve. These were things that they had to commit to memory so they could recall them and recall the promises and the words of God through Scripture. So this rabbi would work with these kids during Bates' affair, and they would begin to memorize the Torah. And most by the time they had completed their training as 10-year-olds had completely memorized the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Memorized. These are hard books just to read, let alone memorize. Last Sunday, my two boys... Uh, Got a candy bar for reciting their two uh, summer memory verses in Kids Point. So I'm saying, I may just need to raise the stakes a little bit. Um, You know, I'm not saying go Bates Affair and raise, you know, the, uh, memorize the entire first five books of the Bible, but man, these Jewish parents, they got something just so amazing about the scriptures. They understood the heart of the proverb that said, the earlier you can get the word of God imprinted on a child's mind, the deeper it sets in. This concept in Deuteronomy 6, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. This was so central to who they were as a people. And I don't know about you, but I, I remember a lot of the Bible stories and scriptures from my time in the church as a kid. And we know that children, they learn languages and concepts incredibly well when they're children. So... Let's take a tip from our Jewish friends and practice the reading and the sharing of the word and committing it to memory around the dinner table, following up with the verses they're learning in Kids Point in Wonderville, bribe them with candy, whatever. Let's just be committed to this awesome book. Okay, anyway, back to the disciples. So at the end of Bates Affair, the rabbi would say, go home and begin learning your family trade. Go learn how to fish, learn uh, how to be a carpenter, go to the fields, learn how to be a shepherd. Take this, what you've learned, and commit it to your community, but go and learn the family trade. But to the star pupils, to the best of the best, the rabbi would say, hey, I want you to go home and begin to learn your family trade, but I also want you to come back and I want you to join me for the next phase, which is called Beit Talmud, and Beit Talmud is known as the house of learning. And it would be the next four to five years of education for, again, the best of the best students. And in this season, they would study the rest of the scriptures, which at that time was the Old Testament. And the best of the best of the best students would memorize the entire Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi, memorized. Memorized amazing and in this stage they would also learn the art of questions and answers and what it means to answer a question with another question this would be where they would begin to develop the art of storytelling and teaching through parables maybe some of this starts to sound a little familiar when we consider the teachings of jesus in fact, check this out. Jesus, uh, when he was uh, you know, an adolescent or maybe a teenager, uh, he's with his parents on a trip. They lose him. And so they do what all good parents do and they lose their kids. They go back to the last place they saw him and they find Jesus in the temple court sitting with a bunch of rabbis. It says this in, in Luke chapter two. They found him in the temple court sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed. His understanding And his answers. And right there, we see this evidence of Jesus being a part of this system of education and having this grasp on the scriptures where the rabbis around him are amazed. So, now again, at the end of Beit Talmud, when the education would be complete, the student would be about 14 to 15 years old, and the rabbi would again say to most of the students, Go home, take these truths, take these scriptures, apply them to your community, go learn and be a part of your family trade. But the best of the best of the best, they would seek out permission to go to the next stage of education known as Beit Midrash or the house of study. Now, very few students ever made it to this stage, but when they did, they would go seek out a well-known established rabbi, and they would approach this rabbi, and they would basically ask, rabbi, can I be one of your disciples? Can I be one of your followers? I want to submit myself to you and to your teachings and to your way, and I want to learn from you. And the rabbi, they would respond by setting up this really intense interview process where they would go through and they would grill these students backwards and forwards on the scripture. How well does this kid know the scriptures? And you see, each rabbi, much like pastors of today, they had their own thoughts or their own doctrine and their own beliefs about God and about the scriptures. And what was incredibly important to them is that they would have the opportunity and the privilege to pass on their teachings to someone who would carry those teachings forward. This was called the rabbi's yoke. And for a rabbi, it was so, so important for them to find someone that they could hand off their yoke. So during the interview, the rabbi is trying to determine, can this kid do it? Can he carry my yoke? Can he not only think like me, but can he be like me? And see, for most students, the rabbi would say, hey, you clearly love God and you have an amazing knowledge of these scriptures, but you are not cut out to be my follower. Go home, apply yourself to your family trade. But in the very rare case where the rabbi found someone where he thought, I think this kid can do it. I think he's got what it takes to be like me. The rabbi would lean forward to the student, and he would say, "Leish aharai," which means "Come, follow me." Leish aharai, come, follow me. This invitation would have meant everything. It's the Ivy League acceptance letter after years and years and years of hard work and study and fighting to get good grades. It's news on the scholarship after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of working and practicing and honing skills. It's what we've been watching play out this past week in Rio. There are seven billion people on our planet and yet only about 11,000 of them were chosen to participate in these Olympic Games. I don't know about you, but I've got a pretty decent three-point shot. Like, I'm no Steph Curry, but on occasion I've been known to make it rain. Just a little bit. And yet no one considered asking me to come and be a part of Team USA in Rio. Which is totally understandable. But we've all watched the incredible stories of these athletes who've devoted their entire lives to this task and this goal. They fought the odds. They fought against adversity. They've essentially given up their entire childhoods. There were not high school proms. There weren't football games. They weren't sitting up Friday nights, late night, having pizza, watching the latest movie. They're snacking on like kale leaves and going to bed at 8 p.m. so they can get up at 4 a.m. to be in the pool by 5 a.m. so they can swim for two hours. Before school. And it's that level of practice and devotion that earned them the right to be called an Olympian. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for them the day that they received that call. The invitation to come and to be one of the elite, one of the best of the best of the best. And see, for these Jewish students, the come follow me invitation, this was that moment for them where it made everything worth it. It was the ultimate validation. It was complete acceptance. It was the reality that they would not have to wake up before the sun came up to go fishing, and they wouldn't have to come back in at the end of the day and clean up fish guts as the sun set. This invitation meant they had arrived to one of the highest honors in the Jewish culture. And now the expectation was that they would leave everything and everyone behind and go follow the rabbi. Their only job at this point was to follow the rabbi and to soak in as much of the teaching and the knowledge that they possibly could so that one day the rabbi's yoke would be passed on to them and they would be responsible to carry the teachings and the move, movement and the traditions forward. So let's go back to our friends Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Where are they? They're fishing their home applying themselves to their family trade they did not get the call to participate in the rio games so to speak they weren't good enough they were not the best of the best they were not the elites they made it to the extent of their jewish education and they had a moment where they were faced by a rabbi that said go home learn your family trade And then this rabbi, Jesus, strolls into their life and says, Laish, Aharai, come, follow me. Suddenly in this context, we see that the disciples' response isn't this weird robotic Jesus-spelled Jedi mind trick thing. Follow me, you will. Like that's not what's going on here. It's the equivalent of my phone ringing and Team USA coach Mike Krzyzewski being on the other end and saying, hey, Matt, Matt Duel, Yeah, it's me. Listen, Matt, hey, it's Coach Kate. i I'm down in Rio. Uh, man, we need you like right away, okay? KD, he's stinking up the place. It's really bad. If we don't win gold, it's gonna be a huge upset. I mean, like as big as the last time we didn't win gold, but still it's going to be bad. And so we need you. Please come. Will you come play for me? I mean, I would grab the best mosquito repellent I could and get on the next plane like I would. I would go down there for the honor of sitting on the bench next to the best coaches and best players in the world. It would just be too much and too good to pass up. And you see, Jesus takes this Jewish system of making elites and only the elites, the authority on all things scriptural. And he says, now my way is going to be different. My movement, my teaching, my yoke, my way is For everyone. The anybody's. The B team. The hurting. The broken. They're the folks that I'm recruiting. They are the folks that I'm after. And Jesus like other rabbis. He had a yoke that he desired to pass on. To his followers. His disciples. He talks about it in Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28. Come to me. And he's not about excluding the best and the brightest any more than including the average everyday Joe. He's just come to set up a new way, a new system, a new opportunity to be in relationship with the living God. It's something that he wants everyone to be able to access. And while memorizing the entire Old Testament would just be incredible, it's not required. What if in my silly Team USA analogy, what if I do get this call? But what if I start to doubt my ability and I start to think like, oh, I don't know. I can't do this. I'm not good enough for this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm going to end up looking so stupid. And yet I miss the fact that I'm teamed up with some of the greatest coaches and players in the world. And if I just trusted the team and the coaches, I could be part of one of the greatest experiences of my life. And possibly even, you know, this around this time next Sunday, have a gold medal around my neck. And see, I think we have these moments so often with the gospel. We've been invited to be a part of the greatest redemption story that has ever been told. And we're being invited to be part of the greatest team, the winning team that has ever been formed. Yet we let our doubts and our fears get in the way of us experiencing the joy of what it means. partner with Jesus. And I imagine that the disciples, they had these moments all the time where they thought, what are we doing? What are we doing here? How are we going to handle this? What are we going to say now? There's this scene in uh, the book of Acts where Peter and John are preaching the gospel to unbelievers and Peter heals a lame man and he walks and people are amazed and the religious leaders, the best of the best, they, they freak out and they have Peter and John arrested and the next day they bring them in questioning, it says in Acts 4, they had Peter and John brought before them and they begin to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And what Peter says isn't important for this discussion. It's the statement that he's filled with the Holy Spirit that I want us to catch. You see, it's through the Holy Spirit that they heal this man. It's through the Holy Spirit that they are out preaching the gospel. It's through the Holy Spirit that they have answers for the elites, the best of the best, and they are stumping these religious leaders. It's through the Holy Spirit and the partnership that they have with Jesus and the authority that he has given them that the work of the gospel begins to explode. A few chapters before this, when Jesus is ascending to heaven, it says there are 500 followers. In this passage, it says their numbers have reached 5,000. And yet this ragtag group of B-team disciples has faithfully responded to the commands of Jesus and the faith has already grown 10 times. I love this verse a little further down in Acts 4. It's the religious leader's response to Peter and John's answers in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been With Jesus. Unschooled, uneducated, ordinary, rejected by the system, fishermen. And yet, at Jesus, they are at the helm of the greatest revolution in history. And it's as if the religious leaders are scrambling to understand how is this possible? We're so much better than these guys, we're so much more educated. How are these unschooled, uneducated guys doing the thing that they're doing? And then I imagine one of them, crossed arms, furrowed brow, just mutters, well, these guys were with Jesus. These are the guys that Jesus said, Leish Aharai to. These are the guys that Jesus gave his yoke to carry forward. And this is the Jesus, the one who claimed to be the son of the living God, the one who re- routinely healed the blind, the lame, and the sick, the one who was friend of sinners and changed their lives forever. This is the guy that we killed and he did the unthinkable in defeating death and coming out of the tomb for good. And these are his guys. And if we're sitting here today, no matter what your education is, no matter what your experience is no matter what mistakes you have made in life, no matter where your life may have come off the rails at some point, if you are with Jesus and you're one of his and you share in his namesake, you share in his inheritance and you've been gifted with the Holy Spirit inside of you and Jesus who is sitting next to the Father in heaven is saying, look, he's with us. She's with us. They're with us. It's through them. We're going to do this work through them where they are going to introduce their community to us. For those of us who are here followers of Jesus today, sometime you have placed your faith in Jesus. You trusted him with the forgiveness of your sin. You gave your life and submitted to him. And it's through your belief in Jesus that you've been saved. But do not miss that Jesus is looking back and he's telling God the Father how much he wants you. How much he wants to walk in relationship and partnership with you. And the belief that through our lives in partnership with the Holy Spirit, we will continue to carry forward his yoke and do the work that the church has been doing for centuries. The phone is ringing it's not Coach K, but it's Jesus. And he's saying, Laish, Aharai, come, follow me. Come, follow me. And he's waiting on our decision. Are we gonna be part of the greatest team in story and story in history? Are we gonna let fear hold us back? Are we gonna let doubt win the day? Are we gonna pursue more of our earthly treasure or are we gonna turn to be about building the kingdom of God? Are we gonna seek out temporary pleasure and fleeting comfort rather than eternal joy and peace? Listen, you don't have to be a trained professional. You don't need to be the best of the best. You get to just be you. You are called to be who God created you to be. Jesus called you just as you are, invited you to follow him and promised that his yoke Would be light. Paul writes this incredible letter to one of the early churches and he talks to them about this partnership with them in the gospel in the book of Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day. Of Christ Jesus. And this is Paul removing all of the prerequisites. He's saying about these. Uh, believers many of them young believers I have unbelievable memories and I'm filled with joy as I think about our partnership in the gospel from day one as in from the first day that you gave your life to Jesus you then turned around and begin to share this hope and this love of the gospel with the people around you you do not need to pull it all together you do not need to fix everything in your life from day one until now you are eligible to carry the yoke of Jesus forward And he will be faithful to complete the good work that he has started in you. He's not done with us. He's always going to be working on us until the day that Jesus returns. But in the meantime, he's entrusted us with moving the gospel forward. And I know for many of us, it's just this idea, but I don't know how. And I think we overcomplicate this. Talk about Jesus in your own voice. Talk about him in your experience Talk about unconditional love and share about a hope that doesn't fade. Talk about promises that are not broken. Begin to learn people's names. Ask if you can pray for people. Come back around and check on people. Work with the body of believers to see how can we partner together to meet people's needs. Start praying for people by name. It's so important that we work to develop and pursue relationships with unbelievers. And you may be sitting here today and you may say, I don't really know many unbelievers. And you know what? I understand that. It's so easy for me to stay in a Christian bubble in my work and in my job that that I could easily not cross paths or develop relationships with unbelievers. And so it's something that I have to be intentional about and we have to be intentional about. In the last few weeks, I met a young man who God has used to just kind of flip my world upside down just a little bit. He walked up to me and my boys while we were fishing on the pier at Center Lake, and um, it was really clear that he was looking for um, a connection. He just seemed hungry for that. So I invited him to fish with us, and that kicked off our relationship. And over the next number of weeks, we spent a lot of time together. And a couple of weeks ago, he prayed with me to give his life to Jesus. And it was a really special moment. And yet there has been a lot of up and down with him since that moment. There have been some highlights and there have been some lowlights. And in fact, last week there was kind of a falling out and, and he just sort of walked out and fell off the map. And I didn't have a phone for him and there was no way to reach him and I didn't know where he was. Until he called me last night while I was studying. And he just said, I want to ask for forgiveness for the way that I walked away from you and the people that have been helping me. And I want you to know that what you guys have been doing for me has really mattered. And and I'm so grateful. And I thank God that he let me meet you. and, And I love you and your family. And I love the people at Mission Point. And you see, the thing is, it's what Kondo talked about last week. The results, the response, it's not our job. It's not our place. God will do the internal workings of moving and changing. We're not here to change people. We're here to be a spotlight to the gospel, to be a spotlight and a flashlight in darkness, to show people love, to show people hope, to be a light on the hill. And then we can step back and get out of the way and let Jesus do the work that only Jesus can do. What about you? Are you ready to be used? Are you ready to step into the role that God has given you to play? Are you ready to step into the fact that Jesus, when he called you, he did so with the desire to hand his yoke off to you? I'd love it if we started putting names and faces to the 50,000 and moving from theoretical and philosophical conversations of the gospel to to real name conversations where we are absolutely getting to work, where we would introduce people to the rabbi who is inviting them to come follow him. One last thing, and then I will wrap us up. If you've been around here for more than a couple months, you've heard us talk about a 24-7 community center. And as we began the process last year of talking about moving and finding a new uh, facility, we were talking about this 24-7 center and this concept and this idea, and we started to explore what were our options. And what we found really quickly, long story short, were just a lot of not yets. Not yet, not yet, not yet. But when we came here and we found this place, it was a really clear, yes, this is the place that we are supposed to go in this season. But as crazy as it sounds, being four weeks into our new home, we will not be here for forever. We still see the dream of a 24-7 center as our future permanent someday out there home. It's not going to happen quickly, so don't stress. You can enjoy the comfy seats for a while. And we know it's going to take time and energy and effort to develop that vision. However, the goal is to open the door to a place that has the potential of being a literal 24-7 center facility that would provide hope and the love of Jesus for anyone who comes seeking him. And we're dreaming and we're praying towards that future. But as we do that, I recall a quote from one of our our friends, many of your, your friends, Andy Royer, who's been a missionary in Brazil for some time. I was interviewing him for a video and he said, you don't magically become a missionary on the plane ride over to your mission destination. You need to learn to be a missionary where you are so that you can pick up these skills, those passions, those practices, and take them with you. If you don't do that, you are not going to make it on the field. And what we know is as a church, we have some skills and some passions and some practices that we need to develop before we're ready to open a 24-7 center. We don't want a facility to be the thing that prompts us or gives us permission to live on mission because Jesus has already extended that invitation to us when he invited us to come and follow him. So now it's our turn and our time to carry the movement forward. Come back next week and we will talk about what it means to pursue these critical foundational pieces together. Let me pray. Father, thank you so very much For the privilege, the unbelievable privilege of what it means to be called by you. Thank you that you trust us with what it means to carry the gospel forward. God, I pray that you would move in us in such a powerful way. And then in partnership with the Holy Spirit, that we would actively be pouring out the love of Jesus and sharing the gospel within our community. Lord, we need you in that. We need your leadership, your guidance, your prompting. God, help us to be in tune and listening well to the calling that you've placed on us. We love you. We thank you so very much for your love for us. In Christ's name, amen.